Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? International threats of bombs, nerve gas, bioweapons, nuclear terrorism. How do trauma centers prepare for the worst? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Donald Trunke, Professor of Surgery and the former Chair of Surgery at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Trunke is an internationally renowned trauma surgeon and considered the father of modern trauma systems. Welcome, Dr. Trunke. Thank you. Today we are discussing the training of trauma doctors to prepare for the worst. Dr. Trunke, recently and in the near future, you are traveling all over the world to train physicians to prepare for life's worst threats, bombs, nuclear disaster, all of that kind of things. Tell us about your course. Well, we have what we call the Definitive Trauma Surgery Course. Basically, that teaches general surgeons how to deal with primarily bomb or penetrating injuries. The course is designed strictly for general surgeons. Now, that does not say that they don't have to know about nerve gas, chemical weapons, biological weapons. And, of course, we all are very fearful of nuclear weapons. But the reality is the number one problem out there as far as terrorism and disasters is still penetrating and blunt injuries, those things that a general surgeon would care for. In my younger years, I used to see in the Knife and Gun Club a lot of people with pea shooter injuries. We used to call 22 short pea shooters, and, you know, they really wouldn't be injured. And then when assault weapons came about and these massive injuries occurred, it was more like meatball surgery. I mean, how can you really take care of patients who are completely destroyed in that sense? Some of them obviously don't survive, but it's amazing to me how well a young person can survive these absolutely horrific injuries. We see it so much in South America because of the drug trafficking. Colombia is one of the most violent countries in the world. 12% of the people who die there die from penetrating injuries, if you will. We see it, of course, in Israel, and there they're dealing with bomb blasts primarily. And every hospital is involved in the disaster management when these occur. The general surgeons are caring for these patients, and they have to go through these various courses. It's tragic, but they're probably more up-to-date in some ways than we are because they have to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. Well, I was going to ask you specifically, what are you teaching that the surgeons and the students here in the United States don't learn? Well, the things that you have to teach is the issue of bombs and what they do. I think the classic example right now is either in Israel, Afghanistan, or Iraq. These are absolutely terrible injuries. These are patients who, in the instance of our soldiers, have excellent body armor, but then that makes the face, the neck, and the extremities vulnerable, and so you see these terrible amputations, traumatic amputations, or limbs that are just so terribly injured that you have to amputate them immediately. 
in Israel, where they deal with the bomb victims, you get the blast effect from the bomb itself, and that's just a, a wave of high pressure that hits the body, or you get the fragmentation from whatever's in the bomb, or the third injury is when the patient becomes part of the bomb and is hurled against the building or a bus or what have you. And so you have to deal with every one of these uh, types of injuries. And I don't think a surgeon who's doing elective surgery, the bread and butter type surgery that uh, you would see in most hospitals, they have no concept of how terrible these things are. I know that a little before my time, it always was said that the best surgeons were the ones who trained in war, in other words, in World War II, and they saw so many things. Well, how can we, with our young residents and interns and students, teach them these type of things, at least to take care of injuries that may occur in the United States, like bombs and such? Well, we're not teaching them. Unless you have trained in an urban hospital where you see penetrating injuries all the time, you're not trained in this. And unfortunately, out of the 125 medical schools, that only occurs probably in about a third or less. And teaching the definitive trauma surgery course, all that does is expose you to what could happen, but it's not like being there. I think you said it very well. I mean, Hippocrates said it, you know, those who go to war must be prepared to do the surgery, and that's certainly true, and we're not doing that. We don't even train our military surgeons in the best way possible. We are doing it better in the last four years. Many of them are coming to civilian centers, but then once they get to Iraq or Afghanistan, they see injuries that you would never see in a civilian trauma center. So, I mean, they're going to come back and teach us things as well. And our reserve physicians, those in the U.S. Army Reserve or in the National Guard, they hardly get any training whatsoever after they've left medical school. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Donald Trunke, professor of surgery and the former chair of surgery at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Trunke is an internationally renowned trauma surgeon and considered the father of modern trauma systems. Today we are discussing the teaching and training of trauma physicians to prepare for the worst. Dr. Trunke, in our residency training programs, it seems that the residents are getting less and less training in certain areas, such as endoscopy, with vascular surgery now being its own specialty, less than that. They're doing so much laparoscopic surgery that we're wondering if they can handle open cases. Well, is a general surgeon who's trained today, is that general surgeon a trauma surgeon? No. I don't think they are exposed to enough trauma to be an expert. In fact, the American Board of Surgery shows that they've only handled about 11 operative cases uh, during their residency. That's just not enough. And it really becomes a problem if you start talking about war injuries or injuries that you might encounter in a disaster because these are huge open wounds. They are all contaminated. What usually happens is people have to learn what surgeons learned in World War One and World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, and now Iraqi freedom, they repeat errors that are made, and that's just not the way to do it. Well, how can 
overseas, the resources be available in the hospitals to take care of these huge trauma cases? I was in Desert Storm, and I can tell you right now that the surgeons who are operating in Afghanistan and Iraq are providing absolutely superlative care. It's state-of-the-art. They've got modern equipment, CT scanners. They've got supplies and drugs that are state-of-the-art. They're using Factor Seven to help with coagulation. They're doing things now that we would have envied in World War II. What's really impressive, though, is that these soldiers are being airlifted out of theater, usually within 12 to 24 hours. They go to Germany, and they're given secondary operations there, and then they're brought back to the United States. These patients are often back in the United States within 72 hours. This is particularly true of the terrible burns that you see over there. We can be very proud of the care that they're getting. Well, specifically, what are the surgeons there doing technically that the general surgeons coming out of their training here from great programs are not able to do or trained to do? First and foremost, they do the kind of things that you were talking about. They can still do chest surgery. They do vascular surgery, and they certainly do the abdominal surgery. They can put on uh, external fixators. They can do damage control. Damage control is where you may not do the definitive surgery at the first operation. In fact, that may be done in Landstuhl, Germany, or even at Walter Reed. The bottom line is, is that we've learned that you cannot do everything that needs to be done at the first operation and get a living patient. You have to do the damage control, stabilize the patient, get their physiology repaired, and then do the definitive surgery sometime between 24 and 36 hours after the fact. Well, let me ask you something that you've been involved with your entire career, and that is the training of general surgeons. Why are we not involving general surgery training with all of these different areas? Why does it seem it's becoming more and more specialized and they're actually doing less? And I think this is a mistake. I think that in medical schools today, in most medical schools, the Department of Surgery is made up of a number of specialists, so super specialized that they may only do one or two operations. This is not what the country needs. What the country needs are people who are experienced in many aspects of surgery. This is particularly true for rural surgery. Rural surgeons, general surgeons, do C-sections, they fix orthopedic injuries, they do ENT, they do... They may even do prostatectomies. They have to do that because that's what is needed in those rural areas. Same thing is true in disaster medicine. You have to cross all of these various specialty boundaries because you're not going to have that specialist team in a disaster. And clearly the military recognizes how important it is to be able to operate on these various body cavities. But we don't teach that in the medical schools because we've become over-specialized. And that's, I think, a mistake. What about the role of fear of malpractice in the United States in terms of a general surgeon saying, hey, I don't want to come in and see that patient. I'm not trained as a true vascular surgeon or trained as a true thoracic surgeon. I think that's a lame excuse. I personally believe very strongly you should never let the fear of malpractice dictate your practice. You should do what's best for the patient and then deal with the consequences afterwards. I think that medicine in general should support these individuals. Sure, we all make mistakes. We should be able to admit it, just like a pilot does. If the patient gets compensation, fine. 
But I think that our malpractice system in the United States is just an absolutely terrible problem. We're the only Western society that has a contingency fee. We're the only society that where punitive damages go to the attorney or the plaintiff. The punitive damages were originally designed to fix the problem, and that's the way we should do it. Well, why isn't this being changed, Dr. Trunke? Greed. Greed. I think that's the number one problem. I want to thank Dr. Donald Trunke, who has been our guest. And we have been talking about teaching trauma doctors to prepare for the worst. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at reachmd.com.